The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Fighting through episode 14, the last flight of Lancaster Lily Mars. Great unpublished history. This is the story of Lancaster Bomber LL-678, together with its courageous crew, including my dad's best pal Don Savage, during World War II in 1944. The Lancaster's veteran RAF crew of Canadian, Australian and English airmen had been on what was to be their last mission before they retired. And on a mission with almost too many cruel twists to bear, we hear the last poignant letter sent by the pilot to his family in an unwitting but foreboding prediction of the mission's face. Hello again, I'm Paul Cheel, son of Bill Cheel, whose World War II memoirs have been published by Pen and Sword in Fighting Through, from Dunkirk to Hamburg. The aim of the Fighting Through podcast is to give you the stories behind the story. I've had lots of memoirs and memories sent to me from people connected to Dad's War, and the aim of this show is to share them with you, the listener. Straight into the show now, but an important reminder to stick around till the end for a postscript and a very special epilogue. Don't forget from now on, the show is not finished till you've had the PS and the music starts. Right, listener, I want to share a few paragraphs from Dad's memoirs to introduce his best pal, Don Savage. At the time war was declared, in 1939, I was on a camping holiday with three pals. Our site was on lovely farmland at Crediton in Devon, England. I'd never travelled so far south before, and it had been my intention to go as far as Land's End. My car was a Morris 10, registration VN9248, and had been bought new in 1936 for £187, a lot of money then. It was a lovely, warm, sunny day in an unspoilt meadow where wildflowers were growing in abundance and the larks hovered in the sky. I hadn't a care in the world. I'd been for a dip in the river, which ran at the bottom of the field, and on my way back, called at the farm for fresh milk and eggs, which we had for breakfast. Life was wonderful. I stretched out on the grass under a scorching sun, my head resting on my arms, thinking and listening to the wireless. Around 10.30am, the programme was interrupted for a news flash, and at that moment, my little world fell apart. The newsreader announced that a national emergency had been declared, and that all members of the Territorial Army Reserve were to report to their headquarters without delay, to be ready for service in two days' time. I was flabbergasted. It was 22nd of August, 1939, and a day I would never forget. Our camping holiday came to an abrupt end, and we all set to, pulling the tent down and packing the car. We were soon on our way back home up north, 320 miles away. One of the boys was named Don Savage. 
He was only 18 and a grand lad and we'd been good friends. He was a splendid scholar at grammar school and when he left it, he joined the RAF, becoming an air gunner on Lancaster's. Listener Don was the son of Henry and Annie Savage of Southbank near Middlesbrough, Yorkshire in England and to give him his full title, Flight Sergeant George Donald Savage, 152-3883 of 514 Squadron, was a rear gunner in a Lancaster bomber and had flown 28 missions before the plane was shot down by a night fighter. Five of the crew, including Don, died when the plane crash-landed in Holland. They'd been due to be rested after this, their 29th and last mission. So what follows is the tragic yet heartwarming story of RAF Lancaster LL678, fondly known as the Lily Mars, named after the 1943 American musical film starring Judy Garland. The home of the Lily Mars was RAF Waterbeach in Cambridgeshire, England, and it's ironic really that it was only five miles from where Dad eventually retired when he finished working. Don started his training on 31st of August 1943 at Air Gunner School at Andreas on the Isle of Man. The crew was one of mixed nationalities, led by pilot officer Bertie Delacour, an Australian. Bertie was the only Australian in the crew, with the rest made up of Canadians or Brits. The crew generally called him Delhi because of his last name, but his family called him Bertie. Flight Officer Roy Picton, navigator, was British. Flight Sergeant George Donald Savage was the rear gunner, he was British. Flight Sergeant George Palamountain, the bomb aimer, British. Sergeant Albert C. Benham, wireless operator, British. Sergeant Gerald Jerry Martin, flight engineer, British. Sergeant Spurgeon Williams, mid-upper gunner, Canadian. Also on board was Canadian pilot officer S.A. Phillips, who was there as an observer, as he was to take over the plane after this mission. They'd all flown together from the beginning, starting in Stirlings and then 24 ops in Lancaster's. Shane Delacour from Australia is Bertie's nephew, and he's told me that after the mission they would have finished their tours and could go home, though Bertie and some of the crew were wanting to join the elite pathfinders after completing their tour. The backdrop to the mission was part of an ongoing campaign to bomb the German River Ruhr area which had coke plants, steelworks and synthetic oil plants. The prelude to the boys mission was a meal together. Steak and chips I guess if anyone has listened to Claude's interview in a previous show. Then to the briefing room when they were introduced to Flight Officer Phillips who was to take up Jerry's normal seat next to the pilot. They'd all been hoping for what was called a milk run, which was more of a routine and less likely to involve enemy engagement. But instead, they'd been given a target deep in central Germany, the Ruhr Basin, the large synthetic oil refineries of Gelsenkirchen, not far from Dusseldorf, where Dad ended his war policing the local population. The campaign bombed various targets, which included the Krupp Armament Works at Essen, Listener, I'd just like to pick up on that, because in Dad's memoir, he describes being a regimental policeman, keeping the peace in devastated occupied Germany after the war. Blow me, he was only on duty at one point in Essen, and described standing next to that bombed-out Krupp factory. This is what he said in his book. 
we went through what had been Essen, and hardly anything had been left standing, and whole areas had been blasted into heaps of rubble. Essen had been a very important part of the German economy, so crucial to their war effort, and the Allies making it a prime target had destroyed its potential. I saw a large twisted sign leaning against a pile of rubble, which had been a factory. It said, Alfred Krupp. I wondered how many Tiger tanks had been turned out from there. Yes, and steel to make the dreaded 88mm guns, which had caused so many problems in battle to our lads. So there was my dad in 1945, standing next to a complex that in 1943 could well have been bombed by the crew of the Lily Mars, including his best mate Don. Yet another coincidence in the expanding jigsaw of this podcast. You know, listener, I've only just worked that one out. It's only by researching the background to these stories that you discover these things, and I never cease to be intrigued by what I discover in my travels with this podcast. The operations records of the Lily Mars show that at various times she bombed Berlin, Stuttgart, Frankfurt, and indeed Essen. So, Lily Mars was airborne from Waterbeach just after 2300 hours on the 12th of June 1944, six days after D-Day. Anyone looking in Wikipedia can find that British raids were by night, the losses in daylight raids having been too hard to bear. By now the Pathfinders could have marked the targets despite the industrial haze and cloud that obscured the area. Guidance markers put the main force over the target area, where they would then drop their bomb loads. The bomber stream concentrated the force of bombers into a small time window, so it overwhelmed fighter defences in the air and firefighting attempts on the ground. So in a way I guess the Allies were conducting a so-called blitzkrieg of their own. I'd like to give you a little bit of background now from some other flight reports which were put in on the night of this action. There's a particular one from RAF Wickenby in Lincolnshire from one group bomber command with Flight Officer Bob Bennett in command. The crew were fondly known as Bennett's Beavers after the pilot. So here goes from the pilot himself, Gelsenkirchen Oil Refinery. Heavy and light flak hit twice. Terrific fire and column of smoke seen at target. Bomb load £12,000. A navigator, Harry Hayton. Very heavy flak and searchlight activity. We sustained damage from flak. We saw enormous fires over the target area. Duration 4 hours 40 minutes. And uh, uppercase, we hated going to the Ruhr. Mid-upper gunner's comment, Sergeant Jim Thatcher. Bombed at 20,000 feet. Very heavy flak barrage and intense fighter activity. I wonder we ever got back. We saw aircraft going down in the target area. We lost two aircraft from our squadron. The bomb aimer, Robbie Robson. We were hit by flak and my size saved my life. I'm only five foot two, so sat fairly low in the front turret. A jagged piece of shrapnel about the size of an ostrich egg hit the plane and lodged about three inches above my head. And a supplementary note on this flight report says 303 aircraft were used on this raid and 17 Lancasters were lost. 
A German industrial report shows that all production at the oil plant ceased, with a loss of 1,000 tonnes of aviation fuel per day for several weeks. So listener, clearly the Lily was going into a really scary cauldron of danger that night. And unfortunately, she was one of the unlucky 6% who were lost. Listener, I now want the story to be taken over by a magazine article written about the flight. It's a great story written by Christopher L. Stewart, who was a pal of one of the crew. It's called A Shot in the Dark in Flight Journal magazine from 2001. There's a link in the show notes. The magazine's given me permission to use their article, which is written from flight engineer Jerry Martin's perspective and from whose testimony the facts about the Lily's demise became known. So, early hours of 13th of June, 1944. The crew tense when Roy calls, crossing into Germany, over the intercom. They're on schedule to drop their bombs on the Pathfinder's flare at 1.10. So far the trip's been pretty routine, but as they travel further into Germany, the excited chatter over the intercom dies. The row of basins lit up like a Christmas tree with searchlights. It's so bright that Jerry needs no lights to read his checklist. As they approach the target, they drop their load on George Palamount and the Bomber's mark. There's a sense of relief. They're now free to get the hell out of there. They turn north to leave the target area and lights. In a few minutes, they'll be out of Germany and racing towards England. They look forward to the cup of coffee that's customary after they've safely crossed the channel. Crossing into Holland, exults Roy over the intercom. But suddenly, they're startled by loud thuds and see traces going through the engines. Lily Mars shudders and the smell of explosions fills the cockpit. Bertie struggles to keep the plane under control and Jerry glances at his gauges, but there's nothing he can do. The Lily Mars is dying. Bail out, comes the order from Bertie. Jerry can't believe this is happening. He grabs for his chute. Where are Roy and Al, he wonders, as he attaches it. He helps Phillips attach his chute. And then something terrible happens. While pulling it on, Phillips accidentally pulls the ripcord and the chute opens inside the plane. Jerry tries to help but quickly sees that it's hopeless, so he dives between Philip's legs for the open hatch through which George has already jumped. As the rush of cold air hits his face, he immediately pulls the ripcord and welcomes the jolt as the canopy opens wide. I've made it, he thinks, but then watches in horror as Lily Mars crashes into a Dutch cornfield with at least four of its crew. As Jerry floats to the ground, he takes off his headset and lets it drop. As he lands, he quickly gets his thoughts together. He catches a movement and freezes as a pair of dark figures approach. Who's coming, he wonders, and thinks about dropping his chute and reaching for his sidearm. A voice calls out, Are you English? Hesitantly, Jerry replies, Yes. Jerry's relieved to find himself in the hands of the Dutch resistance. He ends up at the Kerslag family farm, together with six other airmen, all Americans. Listener, the plane had crashed in the early hours on 13th of June at Zeitlow near Offerisel, 
a small hamlet three kilometres southeast of Bautum in Holland. After a few weeks, Jerry and Ed Bevins, an American B-24 pilot, are moved to the Van de Graaff family in Nijverdal. The bakers and Jerry and Ed are well fed, at times by the unwitting Germans who, who bring flour to the bakery to have goods baked. One morning, as the Germans retreat and blow up bridges, an explosion blows out the bakery's front windows. Jerry's cleaning up inside while Gerrit Nyhoff is sweeping up outside. A German soldier approaches Gerrit and orders him to dig a foxhole. Gerrit immediately drops his broom and runs into the house yelling, Muffin! The code word for German. Then he runs out the back door and over the fence, while Jerry runs into his hiding place. The German soldier pursues Gerrit into the bakery and runs upstairs with his rifle drawn. Suddenly, Hannah van der Graaff, Gerrit's girlfriend, stands in front of the soldier. What are you doing in my house? She quickly convinces him she doesn't know Gerrit's whereabouts, and the soldier leaves, saying, I'll be back for that boy. Jerry's now used to such events, and later that same day, in full view of the Germans, he helps fix the roof. He often rides around town with Hannah. Some call him crazy, but Jerry considers it an adventure albeit one that many others do not live to talk about. On April the 9th, 1945, the Canadians liberate Nyferdal, and Jerry's soon back in England, where he learns that only he, Canadian Flight Sergeant Spurgeon Williams, the mid-upper gunner, and British Flight Sergeant George Palamountain, the bomb-aimer, survived the crash. So that's just three of them. Australian Bertie Delacour, the brave pilot, went down with a plane, no doubt struggling with the controls, and he was killed. Canadian pilot officer S.A. Phillips, as an observer, was killed. And then the Brits who were killed were Roy Picton navigator Don Savage. Listen, you may recall from Flight Sergeant Claude Reynolds' interview with me that the rear gunner couldn't fly with a parachute and had it stored towards the middle of the aircraft on a shelf so it's not hard to imagine how daunting the task was for poor Don to escape. He must have had almost no chance at the back of that plane. Sergeant Albert C. Benham, the wireless operator, died. And Sergeant Jerry Martin, the flight engineer, survived. And it's ironic that Jerry might have survived, partly because the observer, Flight Officer Phillips, had taken his place next to the pilot. I'd like to cover some of the comments made by the connected families on this story. Uh, as regards Gerald Martin, his wife Ruth Martin provided the following closure to her husband's story. Jerry never stopped grieving for the comrades he lost, feeling it was a great tragedy that they did not get to experience the rest of life as he did. He visited Bertie Delacour's nephew Shane in Brisbane, Australia in 2007. There are many members of the Delacour family still living there and they had quite a gathering when Jerry visited. Unfortunately, after our return from that trip, Jerry became ill and after a good life he died of cancer in March 2008. The last of the crew of LL678 Lily Mars. I continue to be interested in the history of the crew and my daughter put together a wonderful album of documents, photographs and reminiscences for him 
Luckily, he was able to answer questions, identify people in photographs, and tell stories up until a couple of weeks before his death. One thing that eluded us was a photograph of the whole crew, which Jerry knew existed. In fact, he'd had negatives amongst his things when they left on their last mission. It was his turn to get them copied. Unfortunately, they were confiscated and never surfaced again, most likely destroyed. Actually, the negatives were in Jerry's locker back at Water Beach, but all of his belongings were taken into custody, and the negatives were not among the things returned to his mum. Listener, on that note, if you think you may know of the whereabouts of the crew photograph, if you've got access to military records or a museum which might have a connection with the Lily Mars or crew, have a look. It would just be awesome if those photographs could be found after all these years. I now want to share with you a letter which pilot Bertie sent to his parents before the mission, because it's a lovely letter, but very sad too. Dear Mum and Dad, I hope you never get this, for if you do, it means I did not return from the operation I'm about to set out on. I have no feeling of premonition, nothing at all, but the reason I'm writing this is an expression of gratitude to you, which I want you to know I feel very much. I've often wondered how it was I was so lucky to be born to such parents as you and Dad. No other mother or father in the entire world could have been so good, kind or understanding, or, to sum it up in one word, so grand as you have been to all of us. Do not grieve over me too much, Mum and Dad. Oh, I know you will grieve, and the pain in your heart will burn badly for a while. But please remember, I've died the way I've always wanted to die. The way countless numbers of other fellows are dying every day in this world. I am merely your contribution to a better, cleaner, freer world. May you obtain that world, Mum. And remember, it's you who are left behind who are the real heroes. Not us who'll die. It's you who'll bear the sacrifice, so grin and bear it, and remember that famous motto that time heals all wounds. I'll not say goodbye, Mum, for it's not goodbye, and one day we shall all be again united in a much better land than this. So I'll only say for the present, lots of love to you all, from your loving son, Bertie. Over to Don's family now. I'm really grateful to the descendants of Don's family, his nephew Don Dawkins, Irene and daughter Kelly for providing literally masses of background material and photos on Don which helped me greatly in compiling this podcast. And this is in the show notes with loads of other stuff. In fact, I've never before seen any photographs of Don, so it really was rewarding to me to see the image of a pal that Dad obviously held in such high esteem. And what a great-looking lad he was. Now, Irene has asked me for some help on something to do with the official reports and records that they've been collecting. She mentions that they've got debrief reports for the three crew members who survived, Williams, Martin and Palamountain, but they aren't very clear. So the question is, does anyone listening have any idea if or how Irene and Don can get better copies? If you do, get in touch with me, fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk, and you'll see all the links for everything there. Thank you. So, a question. What would you think if one of the plane survivors had been able to trace the German air race who shot them down. 
poignant, unlikely, amazing. Well, guess what? As it turns out, flight engineer Jerry Martin's friend Chris Stewart managed to track down the German flying ace who shot the plane down. He was Dietrich Schmidt, an ace with 29 confirmed night kills who was soon to be awarded the Knight's Cross. He flew 171 missions and was later captured by the Allies but survived the war. Oberleutnant Dietrich Schmidt was born 1919 and his first war posting was in September 41. He claimed his first victory in March 43 when he shot down an RAF Halifax four-engine bomber near Ankhausen. By the end of 43, he'd claimed nine victories and continued to create problems for Allied aircraft and added many further victories to raise his total to 43 victories in 171 missions by the war's end. He ended the war in the Schleswig-Holstein, where he was interned by British troops, and he was released in August 45. In 1999, Jerry travelled to Holland, where he met up with Dieter Schmidt and Kurt Schoenfeld. Dieter was the pilot who shot them down. Kurt was his radio man and close friend. Dieter brought along his papers which recorded the event. They had a great reunion, exchanging stories, and Jerry also managed to meet up with members of the Dutch resistance group who'd helped keep him safe. Listen, I've used this phrase several times before in this show, but I'm happy to use it again. How good is that? You know what? It gets even better, but you're going to have to wait for the PS, the postscript, to find out how. So, some really interesting feedback I've had recently. Hello Paul, I'm just writing to tell you how much I've enjoyed listening to Fighting Through. I'm a blind person. You brought the diaries to life and I really hope you do more than 13 shows. I hope your dad's book will be on Audible and it'd be great if you were reading it. I live in England and downloaded your podcast on a device called a Victor Reader Stream. It's a device for blind people. Best wishes, Cy Watson. Well, Simon, thank you so much for those comments. It means a lot to me that people with hearing or sight impairment enjoy the show because my mum suffers from both those challenges and she was part of the inspiration behind what I'm doing. I do hope to get Dad's book and other material on Audible, so rest assured I'll publicise it far and wide when I do. I can't give you a date yet, but watch this space. Some more feedback I've had regarding the uh, episode on the little ship, the bee. What a lovely story. It brought back memories of my dad as he was in the BEF and was rescued from Dunkirk. He was in the Royal Engineers and later joined the Dunkirk veterans, which sadly disbanded as there were so few alive. Dad was injured by a reversing lorry during the retreat, but he was rescued on the Canterbury, which we believe was the British Rail cross-channel ferry. He boarded in Dunkirk Harbour and was taken to Chatham in Kent. After that, he spent the rest of his service as a dispatch rider in Scotland. My dad wrote a few poems which I treasure. If you'd like to have a copy, I would gladly send them to you. Yours, Rita Cooper. Well... I'm pleased to say that Rita has sent me her dad's very entertaining poetry and I'm going to cover it in the next show. So thanks Rita for the feedback and very poignant poetry. 
For those of you who recall Doug Gray's rhyming reminiscences from a few shows back, John's memories of the Blitz and other episodes of the war strike a similar chord, so don't forget to listen in. And bear in mind that this is fun poetry written by a soldier, often with shells flying over his head, so do try to spare 15 minutes to listen to John's efforts. That podcast will be out very soon. Plus, bubbling under in the not-too-distant future is going to be more coffee with veteran Wilf Shaw, who's going to regale us with some more entertaining war talk from North Africa and Normandy. And I'm soon going to be covering a most breathtaking piece of history in a memoir on Gallipoli by Fred Reynard, who you may recall was the chap who wrote the Dunkirk Bee memoir. I know you've waited a while for this Lily Mars episode and I'm going to work hard to get a few more shows out soon so you've got some more great unpublished history to listen to with the Fighting Through podcast. For now, get in touch if you need to through fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk Above all, I would ask you to leave me a review which helps enormously in promoting the show to other listeners who bear in mind send in many of the stories in this podcast. So the more subscribers we get, the more likely we're going to keep coming up with new memoirs. I'm not charging for my work, but I would ask that if you enjoy the podcast, you do show your appreciation by clicking on the feedback link in either the show notes embedded in your podcast player or via the fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk website. Do it next, please. See you soon, listener. Thank you very much for listening. Stay tuned for the PS coming next. I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. PS. One of my last unanswered questions about this fantastic story is what happened to the plane, the Lily Mars. Listener, maybe you are wondering the same thing. Well, I've got a nice epilogue to share with you. There's an historical archaeologists group operating today in Belgium called Plane Hunters. In 2015, Franz Kendricks from Bottom asked his friend Jupe Hendricks from Plane Hunters if they could investigate aircraft that crashed in Bottom during World War II. Several planes came down in the region around Bottom. That summer, several of the Plane Hunters team went down there for an inspection. Franz had been researching documents and stories of the crashes and had visited several sites, including the crash site of Lancaster Lily Mars. There was a Dutch police report from that crash, dated 13th of June 44. Combining this with other research, they were able to confirm the crash location was correct. So, plane hunters set about excavating the site, and some remains of the plane were found and positively identified to be from a Lancaster bomber. Some of the finds included a fuel indicator, apart from the chemical toilet on board, some Bombay parts, and part of the escape hatch from the cockpit. This was found some distance away, about one kilometre southwest. Now apparently this was a strange find because the escape hatch, which was at the bottom floor of the aircraft, was meant for evacuating during a ground emergency, not by parachute during flight. There were other hatches meant to be used elsewhere on the aircraft. According to Gerald Martin, who survived the crash, the crew got the bailout signal, 
Phillips by accident deployed his parachute inside the aircraft and blocked the escape hatch. Gerald tried to help him but failed, so he ducked between Phillips' legs and evacuated the plane after George Palamountain. Mid-upper gunner Pop Williams left the aircraft via the hatch at the tail of the aircraft. The other crew members couldn't escape because of the blocked hatch. Why didn't they hurry to any of the other several hatches elsewhere on the plane? Maybe there wasn't time. One thing the German radio operator had observed was that the whole of the right wing side of the plane was in flames. So maybe fire on board the aircraft prevented evacuation via other means. It's interesting that if Pop used the rear hatch, why didn't Don Savage as rear gunner? Was it because poor Don had been shot up by the German attack? The attack did come from the rear, so Don as rear gunner would have been extremely exposed. Pop's normal escape would have been via a middle hatch right next to him on the right-hand side of the plane, but if that was in flames, then that would explain why he went to the rear, which was probably at that point the safest escape point, being on the tail. Anyway, owing to the find, it does look like the remaining crew members opened the cockpit escape hatch in the cockpit to try and leave. The rest will never know the exact truth, but what a traumatic few moments that crew must have had during the plane's dying breaths. Jupe Hendricks has said, When the aircraft crashed, local police and the Germans were very soon at the crash location. Five dead bodies were recovered at and near the aircraft. Three crew members had parachuted to safety and evaded. The Germans took care of removing all that was left of the crashed airplane. When we searched for the crash site, we knew all bodies were recovered. If not, we couldn't do the search because it's forbidden by our government. So we just went out there and recovered small items of the plane that were left at the crash position because after such a crash, not everything can be cleared. But we did locate the exact position and although we used special detectors, there was nothing left of the plane deeper in the earth. And after that, we started a search for the family to inform them about the exact location. We contacted Shane Delacour, the nephew of Bertie, the pilot. He was very pleased that we'd done research in this crash and we exchanged information. Also, we sent him some parts of the plane that we found. His father, Bertie's brother, was still alive and was thrilled by our finds. Listener, all of this brings us to May 2016. After all the initial contacts with relatives, Jupe suggested to Franz Kendricks to erect a monument for the crew, as plane hunters had done on many occasions before. Franz liked the idea and went ahead organising the event. He searched for more family and found Irene and Don Dawkins in England. Irene and Don pick up the story now. In February 2016, we received an email from France requesting the ages of the crew, as France wanted to make a memorial stone. On the 4th of May, Netherlands Memorial Day, we went to Bortum. Also with us was Shane de la Cour and his wife Janine from Australia. The monument chosen was a big boulder with a plate attached. France organised the entire memorial and a Lancaster flyby from the Battle of Britain memorial flight was arranged. Unfortunately, the Lancaster had a technical problem, but they sent a replacement airplane, a Dakota, from World War II. 
On the evening, the villagers of Bowton walked silently round the village, then placed flowers on the many graves and memorials in remembrance. After a service was held in the local church, they made us feel so welcome. They said without our lads, their country would belong to Germany. Listener, I am going to end the show now, but in doing so, I'd like to express my grateful thanks for all the efforts made by many people to keep this story alive over many years. The relatives and friends who have already mentioned, the people of Bottom, the plane hunters, whether it was keeping photos, researching, finding official documents, discovering each other, or whatever, a lot of people have made a lot of other people very happy. For me... Shane Delacour, the nephew of Pilot Bertie, sums things up very nicely. He recently said, Without Franz Kendricks and Jupe Hedricks and other members of the Plain Hunters and the town of Bottom in Holland, the memory of these brave men may have been forgotten. My family is in awe of everything they've done and continue to do. Listener, before we say goodbye now, just one final thing. Um, if you've enjoyed this podcast, then I would remind you that there are stacks of photographs, reports, official documents, links to everything in the show notes, which you'll find at fightingthroughpodcast.co.uk. There's also a link there if you wish to provide any feedback. You've been listening to Fighting Through, episode 14, The Last Flight of the Lily Mars. Once again, I'm Paul Cheel saying bye-bye now. <laughs>